Right action is the subject. It's the fourth factor of the Eightfold Path. It consists of not killing, not stealing, and abstaining from sexual misconduct. Those are the precepts for the lay life, the household life. And you can see that the five precepts, three of the five precepts, make it into this right action. We talked before about right speech, which is, again, one of the five precepts. And there's only one missing, isn't there? There's a little reflection. We cover not to kill, not to steal, no sexual misconduct, no lying, and there's one missing from the five precepts in the Eightfold Path. What is that? It is abstaining from intoxicants. You don't find abstaining from intoxicants specifically in the Eightfold Path. It's implied. It's implied in right mindfulness and in right concentration. An intoxicant means something that weakens your capacity to be mindful. But under right action, you do not find the fifth precept. You find three of the first four. What's interesting about right action is that it's not merely the absence of those actions that doesn't make you a virtuous person. The Buddha talks about virtue requires intention. And somebody comes to the Buddha and says, does anybody who does not violate the five precepts, not to kill, not to steal, to abstain from sexual misconduct, not to lie, to abstain from intoxicants, are they a virtuous person? And the Buddha says, no. Because an infant, a three-month-old infant lying on its back, breaks none of the precepts, but is not a virtuous person. Because that infant is not intentionally moral. And morality virtue requires intention. It requires understanding. So it's not merely the inability to violate any of the five precepts. It's an understanding. And so this is why right action is part of what's called the virtue aspect of the path. The path, the Eightfold Path, can be summarized as sila, samadhi, panya. Sila being virtue, samadhi being concentration, and panya being wisdom. So this right action is part of the virtue factor. So it requires three other factors to be interwoven with them, and one of them is right view. The reason why you have decided to abstain from killing, to abstain from stealing, to abstain from sexual misconduct, is because you have right view. Whatever to whatever degree you have it, if you don't understand that you should abstain from those wrong actions, then you don't have right view. Right view, it implies that you understand that it's not okay to kill living beings, sensitive living beings, to steal from them, to commit sexual misconduct. And it also is going to require two other parts of the path, right effort and right mindfulness. And abstaining from killing living beings, not killing them, and 
in fact having positive contributions towards them, maybe even protecting them, requires effort. You make the effort not to do negative, harmful things, including killing and stealing uh, sexual misconduct, and you make the effort to do the opposite, at least neutrality, so that the being is not threatened. That requires mindfulness. A heightened sense of awareness about what you're doing. These kind of things can be performed in kind of half-mindful states. This kind of thing happens in in wars and in um, hurried situations, pressured situations. The person is is not really mindfulness. Bad judgment is sweeping over them. And so they undertake these actions, uh, realizing only later what they've done. And so this is, leaves you with a bad conscience. It leaves you wondering, how could I have done that? But the circumstances of the time seem to have pushed you into it. So that's the lack of development of right mindfulness. Mindfulness keeps you in this more or less lucid, rational, and emotionally positive state so that you have, that you're acting out from goodwill rather than ill will. So this right action is simply not a bunch of prescriptions. It's not the Ten Commandments. They're not commandments. They can't be undertaken as commandments because they require a heck of a lot more than simply not doing it. It requires that you have some development of uh, the higher capacities of the mind. And those higher capacities and understanding are right view, right effort, and right mindfulness. I talk many times about the connection that right mindfulness must be supported by right effort. The two of them go together, making an effort. It's not merely the capacity to observe. You're not simply a good observer. This is the difference between... Occasionally I see that college students are hired to stand beside a road and count traffic, different types of vehicles, where they're going, etc. It's a nice summer job for college students. They stand there with a clipboard and count traffic. They are not interested whatsoever in whether you're breaking the law or what color your car is or whether it's stolen or not. And that's possibly a form of observation, mindfulness. But then there's a cop, you see. The cop is also watching the traffic, but with a different idea in mind. There's right behavior and wrong behavior, and the wrong behavior is going to be stopped. Those cars are not merely objects being measured. There's another element to this. It's very necessary to understand the context of right mindfulness for this and its relationship to right action. So certain actions have to be stopped. And in order for you to stop that, you first have to recognize that they're wrong. Secondly, you have to then make the effort. For instance, let's say sexual misconduct. There could be lots of temptations, lots of easy rationalizations, but you're required to actually restrain yourself and make effort. And you have to be lucid and mindful and effortful 
in this. So this is what right action really is. It's you are making strong efforts to behave within the boundaries of these precepts, but the precepts are developed out of wisdom, right view. So and it is an understanding of empathy and compassion for other beings. You yourself know that you are afraid of death and you are afraid of violence. You don't like violence. No living being does, especially intelligent living beings. The application of this rule for not killing applies to all conscious living beings. The application of the rule not to steal actually applies to the human realm, not necessarily to the animal realm. The animals uh, don't really have possessions as such. They don't have ownership. So it's slightly modified. But certainly we understand that it harms them to deprive them of their natural habitat and the capacity to maintain their living. So we're careful about those things. And sexual misconduct is towards the human realm as well. And uh, it has certain categories. And you have to understand it's really not Victorian Christianity. It's not being uptight about a matter. Buddhism has a very different attitude to sexuality than Christianity does, or at least the kind of Christianity we had in the 19th century that got such a bad reputation. In the 19th century, they were covering the legs of pianos because it was somewhat suggestive that a piano had a leg. And they, they were over-concerned about this, almost in denial of human sexuality altogether. Buddhism has never been that way. It's never been uptight like that. What the precept about sexuality is not to step over the bounds of somebody else's dear relationship. So somebody else is married, has a committed relationship, loyalty to each other. That's very injurious to their feelings. If you violate that boundary, that's very, very hard and damaging on humans. Some humans have gone as far as killing themselves in grief and disappointment over these kind of things. The Buddha is saying, you know, out of compassion and sensitivity to humans, don't intrude on their commitments. The other area is uh, one who is under the guardianship of parents or somebody who is looking after them. So this is the area, we're dealing with this all the time in modern law, who is old enough for sexual activity, uh, who, who should not have sexual activity, Who's, who's a, it's a criminal offense, etc. And this changes through time and place. But the essence of it for Buddhism is these are matters of strong concern and heart for, uh, for people, and it's more like a property violation. It's almost stealing another person's uh, safety and protection. So this is what it's about. They're not talking actually about uh, such things as same-sex or homosexuality, or heterosexuality, or any variation of sexuality. They're not talking about sex, really. They're talking about the effect that sex has on the sense of safety and protection that people wish in their lives. So this is how the, uh, Buddhism understands this. And in order to understand these precepts, we have to go into some of the details about what is meant by abstaining from sexual misconduct. 
And there's a difference between sexual misconduct for monastics and for lay people. The Buddhism is quite liberal. Most modern sexual ideas are not very much in conflict with Buddhism. However, there is a, an injunction that one who is under the protection of a dhamma, in other words, a religious commitment, you should not transgress the boundaries of that religious commitment. So for celibate monastics, whether nuns or monks, whether of any religious order, if they have chosen to be in a dhamma or a teaching, this word dhamma is used for all kinds of different religions and philosophies. So you're under a dhamma, a philosophy, which prohibits you from sexual engagement. So that is also to be regarded with given due regard. You should not violate that. Either attempting to persuade somebody to violate that, or if you're under a dhamma, transgressing the boundaries that you have undertaken to uphold. There's a number of areas in uh, modern life around killing. And from Buddhist point of view, it means from the moment of conception till the end of life, no matter how old you are, abstaining from killing. Now, this is very, very important. It could be a whole talk in itself. We now have legalized euthanasia. We have abortions, etc. And euthanasia doesn't just mean in extreme cases. Sometimes it's for people who just are depressed. Are they allowed to request somebody to help them terminate their lives? If you're in the medical profession, are you going to be involved in that? From a Buddhist point of view, it's very, very clear. Don't participate intentionally in the killing of a living being, a living conscious being. So you want to uh, be very careful about that. However, there are little areas such as deciding to not prolong a life, and that's different. Buddhism is not really all that terribly concerned or upset about the fact that people die. What we're concerned and upset about is people killing somebody. <laughs> it's not The dying is not the problem, it's the killing that's the problem. So that if you decide, well, no further radical measures to sustain this person's life, that's a different matter than intentionally killing them. So we have to get that straight. And this conversation needs to be undertaken very deeply by lay people. You know, whether you think you have time or not, you're going to get involved with things in uh, the modern West including you will probably be the designated person to decide whether your parents are going to be terminated or not. <laughs> You're the one that's going to be asked, should we just kill them? Or <laughs> This is a terrible thing to introduce to people. And you need to work it out very lucidly where the boundaries are, what will be a bad decision, and what is an acceptable decision. And uh, so this is very important as well. Stealing is very liberating. The commitment to non-stealing, even the tiniest things, you take a pen from the office, 
they think, ah, there's plenty of pens here. It's a big company, and so I just, uh, at least I get a little something, you know. This is, uh, this demeans you. It's not about stealing. It's not about pens. It's you. It's beneath your dignity. You have your dignity, and you don't need a pen that bad. You don't need anything from anybody else that's not given to you or, you know, properly transacted. And that keeps you, that reduces your sense of greed for the world as well. You're not looking for a free lunch. Everybody's got to make a living. It's, it's just the way the world is. And if you're a little bit too interested in getting things, pushing the boundaries of this, your whole, the purity of your heart, the whole emotional level of your life descends. And when you say, I can't be bothered with this, this is for low lives. I don't think that way, I don't live that way. That's how you uplift yourself. It's beneath my dignity to push the boundaries of this, to take things which are not given to me, not appropriate for me. This is the beautiful uplifting nature of this precept. It liberates you from any such concerns, conniving, scheming, plotting, subterfuge. Then you have to deceive as well. On and on it goes. So this is a saying, I, I don't have time. This is my life. It's too precious to waste on a bunch of triviality. So this is a very brief summary of this extremely important part of the path, right action.